Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus increment 116, and this will be entitled from the English, We Have a Great High Priest, and that really is the theme from here on, and the trajectory of the, what I call the heavenly homily called Hebrews. So we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, into your hands we entrust our spirit as your blade of your word makes a division between our soul and spirit. We thank you for this privilege. We thank you for the foreknowledge that we are accountable to you and that we will give an account to you. And we even do so now before your presence. And we come to your presence and come before you with confidence asking you to enlighten us as to your word and may the exposition of your word give light to us and give understanding to us spiritual understanding through Christ Jesus our Lord amen Hebrews I call it a heavenly homily for our times is the true sequel to the passion of the Christ for we see not only God the Father leading him up from the realm of the dead as the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus. But then we see him now passing through the heavens and into the holiest place of all, the place of utmost holiness, the place of God the Father, who is called by a circumlocution, which means a roundabout way of speaking of him. He's called power. He's called majesty. Majesty in Hebrews 1.3, power in Matthew 26, 64. And of course, to him belongs the kingdom and the power and the majesty and the glory forever. Amen. If you want to put a tagline on the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, 15. So welcome to a true sequel to the Passion of the Christ, Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. And as we've said, that's our one job, hold fast our confession. That's our one job as believers, is to hold fast to the boast of our hope, is another way of putting it, to hold fast to what is basic reality to us, the testimony of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, someone may say, no, I thought our one job was to love one another. Well, without hope, you're not going to love one another. These three remain, faith, hope, then love. And love hopes all things as well as believes all things and endures all things. This hope is not, therefore, only a deferred consolation because in the meantime, really because of this hope, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Those of us who hold this hope demonstrate this love and are free to demonstrate it. So therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. I want to do this first. Archpriest is what I call it rather than high priest or chief priest, mainly because reading it in the Greek, it looks like this. It's A. R-C-H, or the chi there for C-H, I-E-R-E-A, archieria, or archieria, megan, 
megan means great. Archiera, therefore, that prefix led me to say archpriest and translate it as archpriest. Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that's the gist of our confession, let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have, verse 15, an archpriest who can't sympathize with our weakness. Now, sympathize here doesn't just mean a show of sympathy, as we're going to find out. It means a kind of empathy that results in action and assistance taken on our behalf by him. So we do not have an archpriest who can't empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach without spokenness. Parisia is a key word in Hebrews, and it means freedom of speech, but here it's directed Godward. Outspokenness, let's approach without spokenness, the throne of grace. Why without spokenness? Because when we approach the throne of grace, it's with a reference to our speaking to God, and he will listen. We are communicating to him with intercessions for others, with supplications for ourselves and our and others in our periphery, and for all men, all people, and for those in authority. And so it says, let us approach with outspokenness the throne of grace, so that we may be able to take hold of mercy and find grace for timely help, timely assistance. This theme of help and God as helper and Jesus as our helper goes all the way up through Hebrews 13:6 and really to the end of this homily. And so please notice that there's a great emphasis here the positive and negative balance. We have a great archpriest and we do not have a great archpriest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are yet without, we could say, yet without resorting to sin or being found to be sinful. The movement of Jesus through the heavens resulted in his supreme exaltation at the right hand of the majesty and the power that is his Father. This is how we act today. This is how we think. This is how we view things in the course of history. We do not become mindful primarily of things going on on the earth, but on, of things in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, as Colossians 3.2 summarizes it well. This movement of Jesus was called his exodus, in fact. This is a wonderful fact that only Luke emphasizes. The movement of Jesus, or his migration through the heavens, is actually called his exodus. It looks like this in the Greek text there. We don't usually see that. Translations that reflect it are good translations. Exodus, right where we get to see the Greek word usually ends the words like this with the O-S. The Latinized form would be O or U-S. For example, Paul's name is in Greek, it's Paul-os whereas in Latin it would be Paul-us, 
Paulus. But Exodus is the movement of Jesus through the heavens. And his exodus, of course, is far greater than the exodus that Moses led because Moses led about two and a half million people out of Egypt. Jesus leads all mankind out of sin and out of the evil age into the future world. And so, again, this movement of Jesus was his exodus. Only Luke is explicit about this. Only in Luke is this explicit. I think of the word only Luke being with Paul in Colossians 4.14. Well, only Luke has that description of Jesus' movement through the heavens as an exodus. For Luke tells us that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus and Moses and Elijah were conferring about Jesus' exodus. That's again Luke 9.31. Jesus' exodus began outside the gate of the Jerusalem of the Second Temple, which John satirically called Sodom in Egypt in Revelation 11.8. There, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Lord of glory, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 2.8, was crucified. In keeping with the analogy of Jesus' passage to the heavens, to that of the progress of the priest of the old order through the rooms of the earthly tent. Now, I'll say that again. There is an analogy of Jesus' migration or movement or progress through the heavens to the Holy of Holies in heaven. There is an analogy of that to the movement or the progress of the priest of the old order through the rooms of the earthly tent. And so, in this analogy, when Jesus had experienced death, the wages of sin for all human beings, as Hebrews 2.9 says, and then physically died, he was buried. On the third day, he was, in the language of the Hebrew homily, brought up from the realm of the dead by the God of peace, Hebrews 13.20. Now, this makes sense of Hebrews 5.7, where Jesus made strong crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death, it doesn't mean that he was spared from the death of the cross, but God answered by bringing him up from the realm of the dead in Hebrews 13.20. So there is some exegetical archery there that's beneficial from Hebrews 5.7, and we'll make a far strike from there into Hebrews 13.20. The same God of peace brought him up from the realm of the dead, and this same God of peace will crush the adversary under our feet shortly, says Romans 16.20. That is, has application to every generation of Christians. There is some activity of Satan in every generation, and every generation of Christians has the privilege of crushing the adversary under our feet. It will happen shortly. Jesus passed through the heavens into the heavenly holy of holies, according to the scripture. That's the place that I call the place of utmost holiness. When you get there, there's nothing you can say but that which reflects the seraphim's song. Holy, 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 Lord God of the armies. The place of utmost holiness 
where our Father in heaven resides in his utmost omnipotent justice-surpassing love. I'll say that again. It's where our Father in heaven resides in his utmost omnipotent justice-surpassing love and in his matchless, merciful majesty. He entered, Jesus did, not through a curtain, but through the torn curtain, we are told in Hebrews 10.20. We learn during the course of this holy homily that the torn curtain is Jesus' flesh. It's symbolic of Jesus' flesh in Hebrews 10.20, which in fact was torn in the course of his suffering and death. And even after his death, the spear that tore his flesh revealed blood and water coming out revealed his death. And even though it revealed his death, not a bone of him was broken because he was God's lamb in John 19.34 with a reference to Exodus 12.46. In the body of his flesh through death, says Ephesians 2.14, God not only destroyed the enmity between Jew and Gentile, leading to their reconciliation in the Messiah, and that means whether it's recognized by Jews and Gentiles or not, he also tore the curtain that separated God from all of creation and heaven from earth. The torn curtain not only means that the way was made for all and access provided for us as a kingdom of priests who believe in Jesus as the Son of God, it is access has been provided for us to the grace in which we stand, says Romans 5, 2, and that's the same grace by which we are eternally or perpetually saved in Ephesians 2, 8. It means that the heavens and the earth have been reconciled. It is through the suffering, and that's very important here, because we have a, a balance of the supreme exaltation of Jesus Christ and his supreme act of suffering, the balance there. And we're going to see that balance in both this increment and perhaps the next one, 117. We'll see. And so it is through the suffering by which Jesus was perfected or completed. Remember the theme regarding completion. It was through suffering that Jesus was perfected or completed as the source of our salvation in Hebrews 2.10 and 5.9, and perfected or completed as a sacrifice by which sin was taken out of the universe and all things in the heavens and on earth reconciled to God and to one another. We have an archpriest who has passed through the heavens. Can't say that enough or in many, as many times as is sufficient. We have an archpriest who has passed through the heavens, through the torn veil into the region beyond the veil or the curtain. He calls us, therefore. We are partakers of a heavenly calling that is a calling that is issued from heaven where Jesus is. He calls us not from a beach on Lake Galilee nor from outside a tax collector's booth in Jerusalem, 
but from future world, which he has entered as our forerunner, one who is not only the pathfinder, but the path itself, not only the way maker, but the way. As a forerunner for us, he has preceded us on the path that we take. In it, the path that we take is in many ways rightly called the way of Jesus Christ or the way of the cross. And as we're about to see, he is not only the son who is seated at God's right hand in the heavens, but the perpetual priest who is compared to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a mystical kind of name until you really parse it out a little bit. The Hebrew would have M-A-L-K-I, which means king, king. Remember, this is the year of the great king, king. And then Zedek, Zedek comes from the Hebrew word Zedekah, which means righteousness. And so we have Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. And the place where he ruled was called Salem, a.k.a. Shalom, a.k.a. the city of peace. So once again, this is how this flag unfurls and is unfolded. This flag, this banner we call Hebrews. So as a forerunner for us, he has preceded us on the path that we take. And he is not only the son, Hebrews 1, 2, who is seated at God's right hand in the heavens in 1, 3, and Hebrews 8, 1, etc. But he is a perpetual priest who is compared to Melchizedek, as we're going to see in Hebrews 5, 6, and then again in 5, 10, and then up into 6, 20, and elsewhere. King of Righteousness and King of Salem, the city of peace. That's Melchizedek. And Jesus is compared to him as a priest. And so we have a, an upcoming comparison and contrast of Jesus as great archpriest and Aaron as archpriest in the era of the Old Covenant. As I said last time, and I think it's a theme that still reverberates, you and I have one job, one task, as it were. It's to hold fast the hope that we have in seeing Jesus crowned with glory, the glory of a king, and with honor, the honor of an, a perpetual priest. His glory is that of the great king, the city of the great king is where he is in the right hand of the Father. And honor is the honor that he has as our great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. To see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2.9, therefore is to see our own destiny. We see our destiny in Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Not because we earn or deserve that destiny, or earn or deserve that honor or that glory because that is simply our destiny in Jesus and because of Jesus having experienced the wages of sin for us 
and who also took sin away. In this congregation, we call it Tetelestai Phalanx, and again, all are welcome to hear these messages. In fact, I really like those people who listen to the message and will never tell anybody they are and experience it as a guilty pleasure. You who experience this teaching as a guilty pleasure and are afraid to tell your Christian friends or your non-Christian friends, welcome. In fact, I really like the idea that some may listen to this message as a guilty pleasure. In this congregation, we've seen a far wider hope in the 21st century. It's, a, it's an offense to somebody when we show how wide this hope is, how deep, how broad, how high, how universal. But nevertheless, we have seen a far wider hope, a wider horizon of hope, a universal one. And we saw this in the 21st century in a way that we had not imagined to see it in the 20th century as a congregation. Talking about somebody who's been doing this for a while, and as they say, and it's almost over said now, this ain't my first rodeo. Our hope is solidly founded then in the sufferings of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection and exaltation. Our hope includes the inevitable prospect of everything in all of creation, in all of its times, being summed up in the Savior, who himself needed to be saved by God, Hebrews 5.7, and who was saved out of the realm and state of death into which he had entered for us. So he's the new Moses leading us in an exodus, and when I say us, I mean all humanity. Our hope is for the final realization of a universal reconciliation that's grounded in the peace that was made by the God of peace by the blood of the cross of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13, The God of peace, again, is the same God of peace who brought up from the realm of the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep on account of his blood. God raised him up, led him up from the realm of the dead on account of his blood because his blood ratified the everlasting new covenant. As Jesus said it on the night, on the eve of his death, he said, this is my blood of the covenant and it is shed for many, for the remission of the sins of many, many meaning all. Blood which ratified the everlasting new covenant. Ours is no longer just the expectation that we'll, quote, go to heaven when we die. It's the living expectation, rather, that the heavens and the earth will be completed as a new heavens and a new earth by the age-abiding redemption that was obtained by Jesus through his own blood. That's our hope. I believe Karl Barth was right. He was as right as a Swiss timepiece when he said that the world has been reconciled but has yet to be redeemed. I agree with him if, 
Indeed, by redeemed, he means completed by an act of redemption or finished by the final universal impact of what God did in Christ on the cross. And that's why all creation is waiting for the apocalypse of the sons of God, which will happen when our bodies are redeemed. We're reconciled to God. Our bodies have yet to be redeemed in the sense that they are brought into incorruption and immortality at the resurrection coming up that is inextricably linked to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have one job then. I'll say it again. We have one job. Hold fast to the hope of the apokatastasios panton, the restoration of all things that is presently embodied in Jesus and present in our hearts as faith. Let me say that again. Hold fast to the hope of the apokatastasios panton that is presently embodied in Jesus and present in our hearts in the form of faith. We cling to a wider hope, therefore, than we had before. Don't cling to a shrinking hope as if God's arm is too short to save all. And let's pray for everyone. And I mean, let's pray for everyone that they too will be woke to this hope instead of being asleep to this reality and focused instead on the disarming of Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam and the cancellation of Pepe Le Pew and the cat in the hat. I said that deliberately to be facetious because it is facetiously compared to the great hope we have is the petty wokeism, woke supremacy of our own time. These captives of cancel culture are in desperate need of psychological deliverance and spiritual emancipation. They are in need of the salvation of their soul. And so we pray. We pray. We don't hate. We pray. We use our access to the Holy of Holies and the throne from which God dispenses grace. And we approach that throne with great freedom of speech. That which we call the First Amendment in the United States of America, which is under dire threat as I speak. Freedom of speech is one thing that we were afforded and accorded as citizens of this country. And it means freedom to express our own opinions and our own convictions. But here, freedom of speech is most important and most potent when it's directed toward God in prayer. They can't take that one away from you. They can't take that one away from you. So we approach with outspokenness is a better word than perhaps boldness because it's a little more specific. We approach with outspokenness the throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16 so that we may take hold of mercy and find grace for timely help, assistance that comes at the right time, in other words, not just for ourselves, but for others. And when we pray, let's believe and have no doubts. When we say we pray for you, We mean we pray and believe and have no doubts. 
for the Lord is not hard of hearing when it comes to those petitions. Our hope is Jesus himself, whom we see crowned with glory and honor after having experienced death for everyone, without exception, and after having been brought up from the realm of the dead by his Father and ours, in answer to his own prayer to the one who was able to save him from the realm of the dead in Hebrews 5, 7. So I'd ask the question, what separates us? What separates blacks from whites? The answer is nothing because of the cross of Christ. What separates male from female and genders? Nothing separates us in terms of a hostility of separation. And so those who are working to make a separation and accentuate a separation are working against the reconciling power of the cross of Christ. And therefore they are of the accuser of the brethren. Now, to set some tracks for our next message, I want you to consider the wider expression of hope being the scriptures themselves as the testimony of Jesus Christ. The scriptures themselves are the testimony of Jesus Christ, or the scripture is the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19.10, the angel said to John, as he was caught up in the heavenly spheres, the testimony of Jesus is the very essence of prophecy. We dealt with this at some length in our study of Rev the book, our study of Revelation, and he talks about the testimony. And the reason I am awake, I'm woke to this, the reason I'm woke to this, hey, martyria testimony, is because martyria or testimony is kind of related to homologia or confession that it's called in Hebrews, and it's even related to apologia in 1 Peter 3.15. They're all sort of cognates or synonyms one of another. And so the angel said, this is a phenomenal statement. The testimony of Jesus is the very essence of prophecy. Now, here we have the word essence. I've translated Pneuma as essence. You say, but that means spirit. So it must mean the Holy Spirit. It must mean the human spirit. It must mean something related to spirit. And it does in a way. But the testimony of Jesus, I would translate, is the very essence of prophecy. And the reason for this is, for example, E.W. Bullinger has 14 meanings, and he wrote a whole book about this, but it's also found in Appendix 101 in his Companion Bible. Bullinger has 14 meanings or nuances of meaning for the word spirit, pneuma in the Greek, P-N-E-U-M-A. And so one of them, one of those 14 meanings is character. And I think essence is close to it but it's probably better to consider essence as a 15th meaning of spirit or pneuma. It cannot be argued against that the essence or the basic reality, another word that's related to pneuma, is hypostasis, which means basic reality. 
So another way of looking at the testimony of Jesus being the hypostasis of prophecy. It's the basic essence of prophecy. We could say, and this I think is a good bibliology for the 21st century, we could say that the testimony of Jesus, which is the confession that we are to hold fast, is the essence of Scripture, of prophecy, and that means of Scripture. So it cannot be argued against that the essence or the basic reality of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. You can't argue against that because Jesus himself, after being led up from the realm of the dead by God, his Father, spoke of, quote, everything that is written about me, he says, in the law, the, the Psalms, the prophets, and the other sacred writings. That sums up what we call the Bible, the scriptures, in Luke twenty four forty four, No wonder the disciples walking with him on the road to Emmaus said that their hearts burned within them. Why? Because he was given the definition of the Bible as the testimony of himself. That's what the Bible is. If the Bible is seen that way, then people are going to view it a lot more different, a lot differently, and evangelism will take on a new kind of effectiveness and flavor. In John 5:39, Jesus said, quote, "The scriptures testify about me." The scriptures themselves, therefore, are the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the essence of the scriptures. It's essentially what they collectively are. Testifying about Jesus is what they do. The scriptures, plural, or the Bible, singular. So in Revelation 19.10, pneuma means the essential or the fundamental reality of something. The testimony of Jesus is the essential reality, capital R, of prophecy. It's akin, therefore, again, to this word hypostasis, which is found in Hebrews 1.3, in which Jesus is said to be the exact expression of the substance or the basic reality of God. In Hebrews 3.14, we, quote, hold fast the basic reality, hypostasis, of, that we had at the beginning, the confession that Jesus is the Son of God and all that that entails and implies. And in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is actually defined as the substance, hypostasis, or the reality of hoped for things. Most important of all, Jesus, the Son of God, is the exact visible self-representation of God's invisible reality. Character, character, oddly enough. If we ask, and I'll close with this because I want to continue on this same line in our next increment, but leave something for that next increment. If we ask, what is the reality of God? The answer is Jesus. If we ask, 
what is the reality of humanity? We would answer correctly by saying, Jesus. The next time you hear someone say, Jesus, think of that. Revelation 19.10 means that the Bible in its totality is not primarily a book of laws to be obeyed, but the testimony of Jesus to be believed. Let me say that again because it's the basis for what we would call in a theology class bibliology. One of the 12 or 13 or maybe 14 categories of the biblical science of theology, bibliology. And by bibliology, the study of the Bible, we understand that the Bible itself is not primarily a book of laws to be obeyed, but the testimony of Jesus to be believed. When we believe that testimony, it becomes our confession. And we're asked to hold fast to it and to hold on to the hope that it entails. I hope you see that. That's the meaning of hold fast the confession. We sneaked up on it. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of liberty, as James 1.25 calls it, and to have the word of God enter into our souls with its saving power, its delivering power, its uplifting power, its restorative power, its lovingly renewing power. And renew many, Father, who are saddened by circumstances or brought low by their situations, Lift them to be able to focus and lift us to be able to focus our attention on things above where Christ is seated at your right hand. We ask this in his name with confidence and with boldness and with great freedom of speech. Amen.